Next on Lectures in History, U.S. Air Force Academy Professor Stephen Randolph teaches a class about President Richard Nixon, his national security advisor Henry Kissinger, and their strategy for the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. Okay, good morning. Please be seated. And welcome, everybody. Um, so we've got a lot to do today, so let's pitch right into the substance of the lesson. This is a complicated and, and critical moment in American foreign relations. You'll note that the uh, title up here, Bigger Game, Nixon Kissinger and the Endgame of America's Wars in Indochina. Um, the reason I call it a bigger game is because that's exactly what Nixon called it over and over again. He viewed this war in Southeast Asia as one element in this much bigger game of international diplomacy that he was playing in that time. And it's all reflected in your readings, all of the evolution in the international system, the, the chaos that was in America at the time. All of these things shape Nixon's presidency. They enable it in the first place, and they shape it through his entire time in office. And it, because it is a pretty complicated story, I thought it would be helpful to start by making sure we all understand the objectives and the themes that we're going to be looking at today. Um, so the objectives are what we have in this case are two nations both decisively engaged in, in an epic war, North Vietnam and the United States. Both sides have committed all of their resources, which are very different, but each powerful in its own way. Both of those nations need to find an exit from the war. The North Vietnamese have been fighting for about 20 years. There are changes in the international system. Again, the Sino-Soviet split, the Rushmont with, uh, with Washington. They're afraid that they will lose the support of their superpower allies in Moscow and Beijing if this war continues. Nixon, on the other hand, has two problems. He's got an impatient domestic political base, and he's got a larger international game that he's playing. Um, and so he, he, like the North Vietnamese, is looking for a way out. So each of them will build strategies to achieve their objectives. And our strategies will inter interact with those of the North Vietnamese. We need to understand what each side was trying to do, how that interaction worked, and how it played out. And especially with you guys and all of us here at the U.S. Air Force Academy, it's, it's very important that we understand the role of military action in this overall set of strategies. So there are themes, themes up here that we're going to find, I think, pronounced in this narrative today um, that will kind of occur over and over again through this period of time that I'm talking about. First, there's the interplay of diplomacy and warfare. And this... This is not original with me, obviously. This is Karl Clausewitz. This is war as a continuation of policy by other means. But it's also true that diplomacy, in this case, becomes an extension of war by, by another means. This is about as clear an example of the interplay of talking and fighting as you'll ever find. There is, as in all warfare, an action-reaction cycle between the adversaries. We have the wealthiest nation on Earth, the most technologically advanced against basically a peasant economy. And we find that nonetheless, they try to counter each other's capabilities through an action-reaction cycle, continually adapting to the adversary's moves. Um, it's pretty interesting, actually. Um, and I think I may be the only one to have ever identified this, but this war was so unpopular that people tended not to notice that this is the dawn of a new technological era in warfare, right? We go into this uh, war... Um, basically with uh, almost no avionics. We, find we have no precision capability. There is no space-based capability. By the time 1972 arrives, we have precision weaponry. We have computer-based mission planning. We have space-based intel and weather and comm. And we have taken a huge step toward evolving into the Air Force of today. We get to see in this case... Um, OODA loops in, act, in action, the uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. And as we know from other courses and from our earlier discussions in this course, if you have that capability to go through that process quicker than your adversary, you have an inherent advantage in warfare. And what we're going to see is that OODA loop advantage playing out over and over again in different ways through this narrative. 
This one is really important for you guys because anywhere you go in your career, you're likely to be in the more technologically advanced force. You will probably have more resources than your adversary. You will face, therefore, an adversary that could be viewed as, as weaker, and in some ways they are. But it is also important to understand how our adversaries go about compensating for those advantages that we have. Okay? And that's going to be, again, a consistent story through this narrative. And to talk about the versatility of air power is not really novel here at the United States Air Force Academy, but it is interesting in this case to look at the huge range of options and capabilities that air power provides the National Command Authority throughout this narrative. So we're going to talk about the principal actors, and we're going to do that because uh, we tend to talk about these events as abstractions, you know, as things created by policy communities. This is real people with real experiences making hard decisions. We'll talk about the context of the battle, the course of the com combat, its outcome, and then the lessons that are available to be learned. Once you've been around as long as I have, you get a little skeptical about lessons learned, but there are things that are at least available to be learned in this conversation. So here are the principal actors of the American policy community in this period. The interesting thing is that we have studied World War II from various perspectives in this class. These were the guys playing there, right? This, this is the greatest generation grown up. President Richard Nixon elected in 1968 on a basis of basically stabilizing the domestic situation of the, of the nation and ensuring an honorable end to the war. In World War II, he started out as a wage and price attorney, enforcing uh, prices on tires. And he and his wife decided that that was no way to spend the war. And so he signed up for the Navy Reserve, went out to the Southwest Pacific as a supply officer, and became known as the best poker player in the theater. And what we'll find, actually, of interest is that he, he tends to think of strategic affairs in these poker terms. I mentioned the bigger game. He talks about moves and, and uh, games all the time. His national security advisor, Dr. Henry Kissinger, has an even more dramatic story. He was born in Germany in 1920. His family escaped in 1938 from the Third Reich. He was drafted in the Army in 1943, went over to Europe as an enlisted uh, person in the intel community, and uh, was so valued an asset because, first of all, of course, he knew the community and he knew the language. They moved him in, into what we would now call civil affairs, and he ended up becoming effectively the mayor of Krefeld, Germany, which is a nice town even today. Um, Secretary of Defense Mel Laird, uh, during World War II, as an enlisted man on the uh, USS Maddox, which took a kamikaze strike. He was injured in that strike, and it's one of those kind of eerie coincidences that the Vietnam War kind of kicks out. That ship was later involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident that triggered America's uh, immediate engagement in the war. Here's uh, President Nixon with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Tom Moore. Uh, Moore, during the war, was a pilot. Um, he was flying the most famous mission, actually, a patrol aircraft, a PBY Catalina that got shot down by a Japanese aircraft. So he got rescued by a passing ship, which then got torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. Um, and it's at that point you know you're having a really bad day. Uh, but he survived that and, um, and played a central role in this administration, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Down here we have General Creighton Abrams, who probably had the most luminary of any of the careers of the people up here during the war. He was with General Patton's armies, the armored going across France and Germany. He was considered by Patton to be not only the best commander and best tank commander in Patton's army, but the best tank commander that there was. And Patton was not what one would call a modest man, but he, he thought that Abrams was the finest tank commander in, in, in the American forces. Um, at this point in the war in uh, Indochina, he was a commander of US forces for the Military Assistance Command in Saigon. And General John Vogt over here, in that photograph, he's uh, serving in a role on the Joint Staff. He was the director of the Joint Staff 
And in that role, he has worked a really close relationship with Nixon and Kissinger in the White House through events like the Cambodia incursion and the Lamson incursion that we'll talk about in a moment. This is him giving a briefing on the progress of one of those uh, events as uh, Secretary of Defense Laird looks on. In World War II, he, he was an ace and a squadron commander by the age of 26. He was a squadron commander of a P-47 unit that... Um, took off as a 12-ship to patrol, to provide uh, an air combat air patrol over the Normandy landings. So that's something that would change a person's life, I think, to see something that majestic out there. But a few months later, his squadron was tasked to defend the Arnhem Bridgehead against the German Panzer divisions that were coming, coming after the paratroopers. And about half of the squadron got, got shot down. And... Um, General Vogt had basically uh, combat fatigue. He had a nervous breakdown is basically what happened, and he completely lost his ability to make decisions, even to get up out of a chair. And so they evacuated him back to the United States, put him on an active status. He came back into the Air Force a couple years later, um, and by being a wonderful staff officer, basically he rose to the rank of three and then finally four stars when Nixon promoted him at the outset of this invasion. So again, a remarkable set of stories uh, kind of tracking the lives of these men. And we've gone through the war in Indochina a few times, but just to refresh everybody's memory, we have French Indochina, which is broken into four states in Geneva in 1954. North Vietnam, South Vietnam, with its really, really long, indefensible borders. Cambodia, which had been neutral for much of the war, dragged into it in 1970. Uh, and Laos, which is mostly of interest in the war for the supply routes running down through southern Laos, which was a perennial concern of the United States Air Force to try to block. Okay, uh, North Vietnam, as we see here, is bordered by China on the north. That is where North Vietnam's military equipment comes from, all of it. They manufacture nothing. And so either through the port of Haiphong or through road rail networks, basically the biggest going up towards the northeast, but there's a second one going to the northwest. And Rolling Thunder, the um, Chinese had deployed about 300,000 uh, road workers and anti-aircraft crewmen to support North Vietnam. During that period, they'd, they'd anticipated a campaign like Linebacker, and they had created a, more road networks um, through this area. But the key to any attempt to isolate North Vietnam would have to start with closing the ports and shutting down those transportation routes. The aid that came down from there uh, from the Soviet Union was primarily the uh, high technology material that the North Vietnamese needed. That would be aircraft, that would be surface terror missile batteries, that would be a lot of tanks. The Chinese tended to provide kind of a complementary type of support to the North Vietnamese um, uniforms, small arms, infantry weapons, that kind of thing. Any questions then on the, uh, on the general layout here? Okay, I think we all got that. So this is a fairly complicated story. We start with President Nixon coming into office on January 20th, 1969. And from the moment that he takes the oath of office, he is a war president, and this is the most important thing on his mind every day of his administration. We've talked about the state of the nation, the extreme turmoil that's out there, and the state of the conflict. Um, at that point, the Tet Offensive had happened about a year earlier. It had completely drained domestic support for the war. It became imperative for America to end the war. Nixon was determined that he had to do that, but it had to be done honorably, not just by packing up and leaving. There's no real clear plan in his mind how to go about that, but he is aware of the different elements of a strategy that could work. Those elements include, first of all, you've got to... Um, build up the South Vietnamese military so that they can assume the roles that have been taken by American forces up to that point. And that is a difficult, complicated, slow process, but that is what has to be done. As Vietnamization proceeds, the withdrawal of American troops can begin. And this, this began, in fact, in the first half of uh, 1969. 
They knew at this point that there could not be a, an all-out military victory in this conflict, that there would have to be a negotiated settlement. And so under Lyndon Johnson, they opened up public negotiations with the North Vietnamese in Paris. Nixon and Kissinger knew that that would never be a pathway to success. It was basically a propaganda theater. So in August of 69, North, or, uh, Dr. Kissinger went to Paris, met with the North Vietnamese, and began a series of secret negotiations that would continue for the next couple of years. Um, we have, really critically, this tri triangular diplomacy that we have talked about in this class before. We have Nixon working gradually to build a detente relationship with the Soviet Union to get away from the kind of uh, dangerous confrontations that we had had earlier in the Cold War, and he also worked, again, very subtly and gradually over time to create the opportunity for an opening with communist China. Those were both uh, critical moves in this bigger game that he had in mind for the shape of the international system, but with respect to the Vietnam War, these are critical. Because what Nixon is intent on doing, and it's a phrase that he loved to use, was to give the Soviets and the Chinese bigger fish to fry than their support for North Vietnam. If they cut their support, for example, the Soviet Union, if they were to back off on their support for North Vietnam, Nixon could offer them technological advantages. He could sell them wheat. He could basically recognize them as equals in the family of nation, which was something that uh, Brezhnev was always interested in. And these were the trade-offs that jeopardized, really, North Vietnam's war. Um, so this was a critical part of Nixon's program. The problem with this set of strategies are actually two. One is that some of the elements are mutually contradictory. You have a very slow process of Vietnamization, but you have a fairly rapid withdrawal of American troops, the reason being that Mel Laird was a politician's politician, and in addition to being a pretty good Secretary of Defense. And he had seen the Johnson administration get crippled by this war, and he wanted us out as quickly as he could make that happen. He, and so he was always pushing, using every tool at his disposal, budgetary tools, basically running his own uh, running his own policy uh, to accelerate the withdrawal of U.S. troops. So you've got this inherent contradiction. The quicker you withdraw, the faster you, you lose your negotiating position in your talks with the North Vietnamese. And the other problem is it's going to take time, right? It takes time to build up a, an allied military and to execute all of these processes. And he's not sure that he's got the time. So during that first year in office, 1969, you see the Nixon White House orchestrating three major studies on the war, and the third of them is one that's almost unknown, but I think is a really important turning point. You have um, Nixon trying to find some strategy by which they can execute coercive airstrikes on the North Vietnamese in a way and at a pace that doesn't... Um, bring the anti-war movement back out into the streets, but is strong enough to coerce them into honest negotiations. And so they have a working group in Saigon, actually. They fly guys from the Joint Staff and the services out there to look at military options. They have a planning group in Washington, D.C., run by the NSC, and basically the uh, civilian planning group gets mad at the military, and the military gets mad at the civilians. They can't find a pathway forward. And that's when Nixon gives his silent majority speech on November 3rd, 1969, that commits him to this long, gradual program of withdrawal. During that program, Nixon directs a South Vietnamese U.S. Army force into Cambodia in 1970 to disrupt the North Vietnamese logistics uh, base camps that are over there. And then a few months later, an even larger offensive into Laos. And these two are linked conceptually, but they're also linked practically. Because what happens is that when we send those troops into Laos, the North Vietnamese Politburo, which kind of prides itself on always being able to project our actions, is taken by surprise. They're, there's a certain amount of tactical response, but they are taken by surprise by the fact that Nixon could send his forces into Cambodia. And they convene a uh, 
planning committee to figure out if Nixon is going to go into Cambodia to disrupt our logistics there, what is his next logical move? And the next logical move is to do it again, but this time up in Laos, closer to the source of supply, a bigger threat even to the North Vietnamese forces than Cambodia had been. And so having conducted this strategic estimate, the North Vietnamese actually act on it. And I want you guys to remember this, because there are a lot of strategic assessments that you guys will take part of in your career that have very little effect on the course of events. The North Vietnamese, when they decide, when they project what the Americans are going to be up to next, they build a campaign road network in the area where they expect this campaign to happen. They build a command structure so that they'll be ready to go and get organized and respond. They deploy anti-aircraft troops. They deploy road engineers. They build up logistic stockpiles. All of this before we have even begun to seriously consider going in there. I mean, and this is one of the weapons of the week. If, you, if we are predictable, we will be predicted, and they will be ready. Remember that. So what happens then is that the United States ends up supporting a South Vietnamese force going along this little tiny jungle road into Laos to a town called Chapon. And the North Vietnamese um, basically set an operational level trap, an ambush. And what they want is not, it's kind of like Lincoln after Gettysburg, you know. He didn't want to just push the Confederates out of the country. He wanted to destroy them. And that's exactly how the North Vietnamese felt. They didn't just want to push the South Vietnamese force back out of Laos. They wanted to destroy them. And they didn't succeed because of their, basically because in large part of the air power that was brought to bear to keep them off the back of the South Vietnamese. But it was a major defeat for the South Vietnamese proving that North Vietnamese had gradually recovered from their losses in the Tet Offensive. And it has a couple of very important events. It, it's, in my view, the Lamson 719 is the name of this operation. And I think this is what puts us on kind of the back straight in the war. This is what shapes all the events that follows. A couple of things happen. First, uh, President Nixon and Dr. Kissinger lose all faith in General Abrams and in the U.S. military. Uh, because of the sluggish reaction to this uh, operation in, in Laos. Um, probably of more importance, based on that, the Politburo, the North Vietnamese Politburo, gathered and trying to project their actions for the next campaign season. And they decided that if the South Vietnamese, with all of this American support, cannot do better than this going in on this incursion into Laos, then what are they going to do once the Americans are gone? It seems unthinkable that they could offer significant resistance to a North Vietnamese operation. Um, and based on that, basically, they decide to risk a go-for-broke offensive the following year, 1972. Their strategic estimate uh, includes the fact that our withdrawal will be almost complete by then. We'll have very little combat capability there. They know, like all of our adversaries always do and will, that we have a presidential election coming up. They expect um, that Nixon will be constrained by the domestic politics that will be in play. They expect their sponsors in Moscow and Beijing to restrain Nixon as well, which is also in a mistake. Um, but they, they actually put a paragraph. We have their uh, kind of strategic plan. They put in a paragraph that says, so we have made all these calculations, basically. But the one thing that we cannot calculate with certainty is the reaction of President Nixon. He says he is unpredictable, and he is likely to use powerful and brutal weapons against our offensive. The other remarkable thing, I think, in this whole process that I think we as military people will have a special appreciation for is that the North Vietnamese enter into this period with this um, infantry army peasant warfare background, right? What they plan to do in this offensive is to transform their army into basically a smaller-scale replica of a Soviet-style tank, artillery, infantry force. And they're going to do that in the course of a few months of training at the end of a supply chain that reaches all the way from Hanoi back to Moscow and up to Beijing. They've got to get this equipment, they've got to assimilate it, they've got to train to it, and they've got to deploy it. And they've got to do all of that in the midst of an ongoing war. It's a remarkable accomplishment.
And it left them with some weaknesses that will show up in the offensive to follow. One is that you can't train people that quickly to do things this complicated. A combined arms attack is not something you dream up overnight. Um, and the other is that their planning cycle, they kind of borrow from the Soviets as well. It is a very, very deliberate planning cycle, in part because their communications are so bad they can't make adjustments on the battlefield. And so over and over again in this offense that will follow soon, we're going to see them kind of stagnate. And that gives the defenses a chance to re-solidify and counter their offensive. I want to uh, point out here, this is President Tu of South Vietnam. He's a general who had kind of survived and prospered through all of the kind of chaos in the late 1960s, emerged as a leader of that nation. Um, and over here, we have kind of the, uh, the communist side of this equation. We have Le Zuan, who is effectively the successor to Ho Chi Minh, and we have Mao Zedong, who was an uh, avid supporter of the North Vietnamese war effort. So Hanoi goes all in. This is all they got. They rolled the dice with a three-front offensive. The plan is to start with this conventional warfare, and they send tanks, heavy artillery, masses of infantry, first against the demilitarized zone, then a second front north of Saigon, threatening the nation's capital. And then there's kind of a slower rising offensive in the central highlands. And they end up driving the South Vietnamese back setting siege to the, the provincial capital of Khantum in the central highlands and Anlok down south. And it looks like this whole plan is going to succeed. And what they expect to happen, what they plan to happen, is first to achieve this conventional success and disrupt the South Vietnamese military. Then once the South Vietnamese kind of move out of position, they can reclaim uh, territory in the populated areas down in the Mekong Delta and reestablish their hold on the population. And once that happens, they expect that Tu's government will be so weak that they can encourage political action in the streets, overthrow the government, and join a coalition that they expected to follow. So that is, that is their, their own version of the bigger game. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So what happens? How do we think Nixon's going to react based on what we know about him? The technical phrase is, he went nuts. He is not having it. He is totally not having it. He views this as a direct threat to his domestic position, to his chances of being elected again, to his relations all around the world with the Europeans, the Soviets, the Chinese. And he orders an all-out response. And that's important because he has lost his confidence in the Secretary of Defense He's lost his confidence in General Abrams. He has no feeling that they will interject into this operation the energy and the power and the creativity that he wants to see. So he calls Admiral Moore into his office, reading the Riot Act, and says, this one's on you. You guys in the military have been complaining about these restrictions now for years. Now it's kind of a put-up-or-shut-up moment. So we send carriers. There's a Saratoga on the East Coast getting ready to go to the Mediterranean. Nope, you're headed west. And off they go to the war. You got the midway halfway through its workup cycle, and they abbreviate that, send them across the Pacific. Massive rapid deployments of TAC Air and B-52s across the Pacific. And again, this I think is, although not often noted, it's the first time in our history as a nation, or any nation actually, that we've had the capability with that kind of strategic mobility to get forces deployed, ready to go on, on arrival. Personnel changes. Again, he had no faith in General Abrams. He calls General Boat into his office and gives him his charge. He says, basically, what you say will go. Uh, General Abrams has had a wonderful career, but he's tired, he's old, he can't do this. They place diplomatic pressure on Russia and China. They send uh, five B-52 strikes into the panhandle, four into the panhandle of North Vietnam, basically as a warning, saying to the North Vietnamese, if you guys don't back off, there is no length to which I will not go to stop this offensive. And then when those don't work, Kissinger is now off in Moscow, and Nixon is determined that Kissinger be there in a position of strength. So he sends a force of B-52s against Haiphong Harbor into the North Vietnamese heartland. And it is a, a devastating attack. It's the only one of these earlier B-52 raids where there are civilian casualties. 
Um, but for the North Vietnamese, it is even more serious because the electro, the, uh, the jamming and the chaff and the escorts and the spoofing was so powerful that they didn't even know until the next day that there had been B-52s in the strike force. So they knew they had a problem, a real big problem. Um, Nixon directs, personally directs, a tack air campaign against North Vietnam up to 20 degrees north. And this, once again, is kind of forgotten by history, but it's probably per sortie flown the most effective of any of these operations against North Vietnam because, again, it took the North Vietnamese by surprise. And most important, and we always need to remember with all of this activity, what really matters is what's happening on the ground. And they flood South Vietnam with air power and they stagnate the, uh, the assaults on Anlock and Kontum. But on May the 1st, due basically to a breakdown in the South Vietnamese command structure, the North Vietnamese are able to advance to the south and take the provincial capital of Quang Tri. It's the only provincial capital they had captured at that point in the war. It is a huge uh, symbolic and diplomatic value to them, no real practical value. And meanwhile, it looked as if Anlock and Kantum could fall at any time. This was a crisis, and Nixon views it both as a crisis in theater, but also as something that's going to damage his upcoming summit with the Soviet Union. He is perfectly willing to lose that summit if going to that summit means the loss of South Vietnam. He said, we can afford not to have a summit. We cannot afford to lose this war. And so he convenes his core advisors. This is another one of those meetings that is recorded on the Nixon tapes, which is just such a godsend to the historian. You can listen to Nixon and Kissinger and John Connolly and Al Haig talk through their options, and finally, they all decide that we need to escalate at this point. We need to mine the port of Haiphong. That does no good if you don't shut down that road rail network from China, right? So you also have to open a sustained air campaign to isolate North Vietnam from, from its sponsors. And this is a quote from Nixon. It's uh, where I got the title for my dissertation, in fact. We're playing a much bigger game. We're playing a Russia game, a China game, and an election game, and we're not going to have South Vietnam collapse. That's on the 3rd of April, immediately as he hears the word of the offensive. So Nixon escalates. He directs uh, operation Linebacker, pocket money is a mining operation that keeps the ports closed through the remainder of the war. He actually orchestrates this, so he's making a speech to the American people announcing all of these things at the very moment that the Navy is dropping these mines into the water in Haiphong. It's, it's, Vietnam is not famous for its elegant operations. This was an elegant operation. Shut that, shut that harbor for the rest of the war. So the uh, objectives here, strategically, what you're trying to do, first of all, is to coerce the North Vietnamese into serious negotiations, and secondly, to isolate them from their sponsors. To do that, at the operational level, you've got to close, close the means of transport. You've got to shut down the roads and the rail. Tactically, you've got a real challenge in trying to do that because the same factors that made rolling thunder so difficult, we're also going to be there. The North Vietnamese defenses, the wide, wide open geography, and the weather patterns of Indochina. What Nixon wants with linebacker is everything that rolling thunder had not been. He wanted a rapid cataclysmic assault, just a crashing nonstop attack on North Vietnam that would shock them in addition to bringing all this damage down on them. What he got was as I phrase up there, a somewhat better air war. Um, what are the advantages now of linebacker over rolling thunder? These are pretty well known. First of all, this is the point where laser-guided bombs become widely used in combat. And if you're going to try to drop bridges and put holes into roads, that's a good way to do it. You can save hundreds of sorties. But what you can't do with that is to shut down all of the roads and all of the bridges because the North Vietnamese, again, had prepared for the air campaign. They had backup pontoon bridges. They had a completely mobilized population ready to repair roads at a moment's notice. Um, Rolling Thunder was famous again, and you guys will have heard of this, for Lyndon Johnson sitting with his advisors at lunch and picking targets. Um, Nixon, again, he hated 
actually a lot of things, being Richard Nixon, but one of the things he really hated was to do anything that would get him compared to Johnson as a war leader. And so targeting was generally delegated to commanders in theater with fewer restrictions on the uh, air campaign. But the most important thing, I think, out of all of this is that you've got where Johnson was a really reluctant war president. He, I mean, his heart was in his domestic program. Nixon, I think, loved being a war president, at least to the extent of being able to pump energy into this operation. There's this presidential sense of urgency that really is more important than the technical changes or the tactical changes. Nixon tells Moore, I'm going to watch this every morning and every night. And sure enough, he does. He gets updates every morning and every night. When he goes off to Moscow in late May, he leaves a long letter to Al Haig giving him directions on what he wants done while he's away. And basically, it is not to back off on the bombing for diplomatic purposes. It is to intensify it during that period because he wanted to be strong in that uh, meeting with Gorbachev. Not Gorbachev, sorry, Brezhnev. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've got all these advantages in the air campaign, but it's kind of ironic in a sense. You've got this wonderful advance in weaponry, but it brings its own complication in two ways. One is that these laser-guided weapons are even more sensitive than conventional attacks to weather, right? You've got seeker heads that can be drawn off by bad weather. The other is that that uh, General Vogt decided to shape his entire air campaign around precision weapons. And he had a lot of laser-guided bombs. What he didn't have was a lot of guidance pods. He only had six of them, and no more were going to come. And he needed to protect those for the whole duration of this air operation. So he built a strategy for these air, air operations that were built around the strike package of a laser designator and a few aircraft carrying bombs with air-to-air -air and SAM suppression and tankers, and it became a really complicated complex mode of operation, which led then to fr fragility, actually, on the field of battle. You know, these guys didn't have a chance to talk on the phone beforehand to say, you know, this is the plan. They're, they're in Indochina. There aren't any phones. So they have to figure it out through their orders and what they can piece together airborne. So it erodes tactical integration, and you fall into, once you find something that works, you don't want to change it. Right? It's just like almost everything in life, except if you do that in a military environment, you become predictable, and the North Vietnamese were able to take advantage of that. Uh, the weather remains a problem. North Vietnamese countermeasures, again, a fully mobilized society. They've got nothing more important than keeping the roads open. But meanwhile, down south, there's a cascade of air power that stagnates the Easter Offensive. The Vietnamese recapture Quang Tri, and the Politburo, in a real striking example of this interplay of war and diplomacy, they gather and decide that we've gotten all we're ever going to out of this offensive. It's time now to turn to diplomacy. And so they enter into serious negotiations for the first time. Kissinger and his North Vietnamese counterpart conduct talks in July, August, and September, both of them wanting to settle this thing before the election, each for their own reasons. Um, and they're converging now toward the last negotiating session before the election in October. And there's a quiet conversation, again, captured on the Nixon tapes, where they talk about their view of the war. And it's, it's really fascinating. Um, so Nixon is basically making sure that he and Kissinger have the same vision of the type of settlement that they need, what this nation needs. And what they need is to be out of that war. And so... And so they expect to fully withdraw from the war. They expect to leave the North Vietnamese in place in a leopard spot arrangement within South Vietnam. Um, they basically take count of what they need to do, given that that's the outcome that they, they seek. And what they need to do is to do everything conceivable to support South Vietnam up to the point where we withdraw. Maximum military support, maximum logistic support, political support, diplomatic support, all of that. We cannot be seen to be stenting, to be holding anything back. 
But in the end, we need to withdraw, and we can't afford to go back. And Nixon gives his reasons, which is the most interesting part of this. He's back to his bigger game analogy, and, and this time the bigger game has to do with the Russians and the Chinese and the Europeans, and even he wants to try to settle the Middle East. All of those things are at play. And so, and so we end with, right after that conversation, actually, Kissinger goes off, reaches an agreement with the North Vietnamese, ha actually has it ratified by President Nixon, goes off to Saigon and has it absolutely rejected by President Tu because it leaves the North Vietnamese in place in South Vietnam and it gives them a role in the South Vietnamese political system. And there's this most bitter three months, I think, any president could have in the midst of this electoral triumph on November 7th. We have um, Nixon and two exchanging letters, two resolutely opposing this uh, settlement. Nixon and Kissinger unwilling to give any fundamental uh, change to the settlement, to the, to the South Vietnamese. And finally, they have the most uh, kind of a step-by-step approach toward a negotiated agreement on December 14th, but there are two basically symbolic differences between the United States and the North Vietnamese. And so Kissinger and Ledek Tho go back to their capitals for consultation. They didn't break off negotiations. It was just a break to consult with the capitals. Once again, there's a meeting on the Nixon tapes, and you can hear this whole discussion that ends up triggering linebacker two, the Christmas bombing. Um, on December the 14th of 72. Linebacker two would be the coercive measure against the North Vietnamese, but less visible, but I think much more important and deadly, you have threats of cutoff of military, diplomatic, and economic support for the South Vietnamese, which is a mortal threat to them. Nixon feels like he is forced to turn against both sides now in the end game of this process. So now we move into the final climactic military action of the war. This is Nixon going up as high as he can get on the escalatory ladder. Linebacker planning and preparation for the Americans began on December 14th, and it extended for four days. Four days to put together an operation of this complexity into this highly defended an area. For the North Vietnamese now, and this is another one for you guys to remember, you remember those comments I made about the raid on Haiphong, where they hadn't even been aware that B-52s were in the strike force. The North Vietnamese knew that if they sent B-52s north once, they would do it again, and they needed to be ready. So basically, they turned the entire country into a research institute to try to figure out how to penetrate the jamming and the chaff and the Shrike missiles being fired, all of that. And they deployed their missile uh, radar guys down south so they actually get a visual look at B-52 formations. You have to understand the formations and the tactics and the altitudes and the jamming and how to work the radar. And they spent months doing that. They turned out campaign plans, defensive campaign plans, to defend the heartland. They did a uh, version in July, again October, and again finally in November. So the objectives for the air campaign, as Nixon and the National Security Council directed, are first on strategic. It is, strictly speaking, to coerce the North Vietnamese into accepting any change in the proposed settlement that will enable Nixon to declare victory and end the war, literally. There's a tasking order drafted by Al Haig that explicitly states that we are not to use military considerations, strictly military considerations in drawing up the plan. Our objective is maximum psychological shock, and that's what they're out to get. Operational, that means going downtown. That means taking B-52s downtown. And tactically, it means trying to integrate this incredibly complicated series of Air Force and Navy um, capabilities. So the sequence, again, it's in many books. You guys will be familiar with it. Basically, they delegate the tasking authority to the Strategic Air Command in Offutt, Nebraska. It has no field for the battlefield. What they have is a very strict tradition of absolute abeyance to orders and a lack of flexibility at the field level. So SAC comes up with a, uh, with a concept of ops that involves basically three large waves of B-52s each night, uh, about 40 B-52s per, per wave. Uh, going in at the same ground track, the same altitude, the same airspeed, everything. And this is an absolute 
and um, absolutely unacceptable by any concept of operations. And so we lose three B-52s the first night, none the second. Third night, all the accounts come due, and we lose six B-52s. What we have here is a picture of the uh, B-52 crews in the first briefing where they announced that we're going to Hanoi. And I think the people staging the briefing sort of expected one of those World War II movies, you know, where they say, we're going to Berlin, and everybody cheers, but they said, we're going to Hanoi, and everybody's got this really somber look on that is known to be a dangerous place. And this is some of the danger in action the B-52 destroyed at altitude. So they have the initial phase, this extreme, stereotypical, predictable tactics. The next few days, they basically uh, reduce the size of the strike force, and they go hit targets that are outside the heartland, uh, basically just trying to reduce casualties. They then have a day off, and it's really entertaining, Christmas holiday, to watch both sides take advantage of the lull. You know, they're both kind of blaming the other. The North Vietnamese had done a beautiful job planning for this campaign, but what they hadn't factored on is not their missile inventory, but their missiles built up and ready for launch. And there's a huge processing thing. The SA-2 is a very old system, and it takes a lot of care and feeding. So this whole, there's a whole literature almost of these uh, North Vietnamese missileers begging to get missiles. You know, they had plenty in their inventory. What they didn't have is plenty ready to fire. And so they spend the Christmas holiday building up their stocks again, getting ready for the attack that they knew would come at after the uh, holiday. The Americans, on the other hand, completely recast their operations, and instead of these widely separated waves and these stereotypical attacks on a single axis, they come up with a beautiful attack plan for the first day after Christmas, hitting basically the North Vietnamese heartland from multiple directions simultaneously um, and getting away with two losses. So again, a fundamental change in the campaign. After that, I think both North Vietnam and the United States knew well enough that negotiations were about to pick up again, and uh, so there are three more days of the campaign. The immediate outcome is that negotiations do pick up again on January 8th, and they come up with a negotiated settlement. Two opposes it until only several days before the formal signing in late January, but eventually he comes along as well. Um, yeah, so here we have Kissinger and Leduc Tho at the moment of success, I guess you would say, signing the uh, October agreement, going out into the street and greeting the press. And so in the couple minutes that we have left, um, so how do, we, how do we summarize all this? You guys got any thoughts? I think one of the big things is just how much change we saw over the course of the war. Um, and there was kind of one question I had, which was, you know, there's that iconic picture of Johnson, hands in his uh, head, face, and looking uh, at the numbers. Did Nixon ever have one of those moments uh, in his presidency during the war? I don't think, I've never seen any evidence of Nixon having that kind of a I'm so miserable and there's no way out. Like, what Nixon had was a constant state of irritability. And the uh, conversation I was going to mention where basically he's talking about a decent interval in that conversation on October 6th. He says, basically, when we leave, we ain't coming back. And they gave South Vietnam a 25% chance of survival. And he and Kissinger would have conversations like that recurrently. And part of it was actually sharing thoughts. Part of it was exploring options. And part of it was just letting off steam. And he had so much uh, inner anger, basically, at the rest of the government and the military. I mean, you kind of name it, um, that that was kind of an integral part of his way of, of uh, conducting business. But there was never that kind of despair, I don't think. There was frustration a lot and irritation a lot. Okay, sir? Um, so since the uh, North Vietnamese, they knew that the U.S. was uh, planning on withdrawal within the year, um, was there a reason that they decided to go on an offensive rather than just wait the U.S. out? Yeah, that's, it's interesting for a couple reasons, that question. First of all, 
there is a huge mass of information out on North Vietnamese planning and operations and strategic thinking, but the Politburo de deliberations, who made what arguments, who was on what side, that, that remains untouchable. They've never released any of that. But there's a, a, uh, an account actually by Lee Duc Tho. When he went off to Paris on one of his negotiating trips with Kissinger, he visited the uh, French Communist Party there, and he talked about the internal deliberation. They said, why are you doing this? And he said, well, it was a tough decision, and basically it was a majority vote that voted for it, which may or may not have been true. But, um, but basically what drove them to triggering this offensive while America was still in theater was that they needed to have a negotiated settlement to secure American withdrawal. That's what they needed most of all. And to do that, you need to, to raise, raise the urgency to the Americans of, of concluding a negotiated solution. And if, if there hadn't been a negotiated solution by the end of 72, then, then we would have kept a residual force there until, until there was one. It could have extended indefinitely, as a matter of fact. They needed to bring the American presence in South Vietnam to a close, and what they had to do then was to raise the ante through that offensive. I have a follow-up question. Do you think they expected then the kind of heavy-handed response from the U.S., kind of the escalation, or did you say, did they think that the U.S. would kind of back down and then just try and accelerate negotiations? They were shocked at Nixon's response, absolutely shocked, and uh, w with the vigor of it, with the style of it, with the unrelenting nature of it, he, they really miss it. Miss estimated what Nixon was capable of doing and and it paid that played out through the through the remainder of this whole time period sir so one of the big things that you touched on was like the technological aspect of the warfare that Nixon brought to linebacker one and linebacker two did this kind of set a technological precedent for future air campaigns by the United States yeah it sure did and in fact um, this this period more broadly actually changes the whole culture and leadership of the U.S. Air Force. When you go into that period, it is all the old World War II bomber guys, right? It's a strategic air command-oriented force. By the time you've been at war in a conventional theater for seven years, you have this whole different view of warfare, the utility of the Air Force, and who ought to lead the Air Force. And so pretty soon you have the rise of the fighter generals, to, to quote the title of a book on the subject, and a uh, complete change in the culture of the force. And again, we see this pattern that was set in linebacker playing out 19 years later in Desert Storm, right? The PGMs is a weapon of choice uh, and, and this sort of overwhelming assault that we actually did succeed in, uh, in conducting in Desert Storm. Um, so guys, we're out of time and content simultaneously, which is always a success. So thank you for your attention. Um, I look forward to seeing you Thursday. Uh, paper's been, uh, yeah, moved back until next Tuesday. On Thursday, as I mentioned in my email, let's plan on coming in and, and just talking more or less informally about our research program, what we've learned, um, and how we've adapted to what we have found in our resources. Okay? Okay, thanks, everybody. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. at midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.